This is Boom, It's On The Blockchain. My name's uh, Alistair Caithness. I'm here with our co-host, Garrett. How are you doing, Garrett? Good. How are you doing, Alistair? Perfect. And we're, sorry for the delay, everybody, but we're actually TikTok live, and there currently is nobody watching us on TikTok. Never mind. It's uh, Some people might log in anyway, you know? So that's excellent. So appreciate everyone coming to um, join us today on Boom It's on the Blockchain. So today we're going to be speaking about um, all the upcoming things that have been happening with Bitcoin, go a little bit more about climate change and CO2 emissions so people can understand it, look a little bit more about our product itself and what we're doing in terms of tokenizing energy assets and this green Bitcoin mining and how we think it can lead to green oil. And from there, we'll um, develop it from there. So, you know, let's just shoot on in then Garrett and the first thing we're going to talk about today is the Bitcoin price and everything that's actually happened well yeah the talking about prices um you know that's it everybody does it everybody just obsesses over price and you know I've always been more of a technology guy but yeah there's um this is one of the most interesting things that I've seen happen because they've, you know, there's so many stable coins propping up this $29,000 value per coin. Uh, and two of those stable coins, I can say very confidently lost their peg yesterday. I think I saw Tether, which is the most concerning one, go as low as 93 cents it has i think it's, i saw it go um lose its peg as low as it ever has um terra though however that was a whole different animal that was a full collapse of a uh cryptocurrency that was worth 70 billion dollars in market cap uh evidently i don't think anything near that was actually there and uh they had a stable coin too and that was partially to blame so uh do, do you know what happened alistair no i i'm not really aware of that but it was just like the slide i brought up there to and this was a, this is actually market watch uh, back in i think 2018 and this was the the last demise of bitcoin people and this time they said this is it this is the final nail in the coffin in bitcoin the crash that happened there couldn't have been any worse and the article goes on about it but what's interesting about this slide is or what market watch spoke about then as well is if you look at the prices so you look at this time whereby uh, it drops 49%, which is essentially, you know, it's dropped, I think, right now from 69,000 to 30,000. So, you know, potentially 60%, it's dropped down there. So back anyway, in 2012, it dropped 50% and it went from $7.38 to $3.80. So, you know, if we could buy Bitcoin right now for $3.80, I think people would be quite happy with that, you know, unless you bought it for 69,000, obviously. So... No, I think I can do more down. Yeah, so it's, it's, call me here. Yeah. 
No problem. So then, then we're starting looking at the other crashes that happened there as well. So again, there was another one coming back in, you know, in uh, August 12th. So it was way up at 16.41, then dropped down to $7.10. That was a 57% crash. And that was a three-day correction. So, you know, if you look at that then, you know, that's potentially similar to the crash that's happened right now. And as it goes through the different charts of the time, you can see the prices are going up. So, you know, back in November of uh, 2013 to January 2015, this was 411 days they did this for. So this is a long time in terms of uh, losing the value of Bitcoin. And it went from a peak of $1,100 down to $152. And this correction has just happened again and again and again through the life cycle of Bitcoin. And every single time it happens, it seems to be this is the disaster what it is. What's interesting about that is, you know, if you look at the chart itself, you will see that there's actually at no point was it even up to 29,000. And this is going back to 2018. So obviously it hit this peak of 69,000 last year. And now it's down just under 30,000. But if you think of everything else that's happened in the market space, it's just like because Bitcoin now is going through wallets like Coinbase and Kraken and these companies are regulated with the markets and they're essentially tech companies. So the tech industry has taken a massive hit in the last week and a half. I think in three days I saw an article saying they lost over a trillion dollars in the, you know, the main five big tech companies out there. So, you know, Bitcoin, because it's associated to the markets, it's not working out with things anymore, uh, Garrett. So, you know, if the markets get hit, Bitcoin goes down as well. So people need to know it's a volatile commodity. Uh, you know, we understand that it's a new commodity coming in, but historically it's had multiple crashes. And that's what this um, uh, market watch is saying back in 2018. The funny thing is every time it does this, they always say the same thing is this the very end of Bitcoin, you know? So this time, is it going to go to zero and that'll be the end of it? But what you'll have seen from this slide is it's done this multiple times and then it continues to rebound and continues to grow. And, you know, there's a lot of different um, institutional money into Bitcoin. You know, we saw like just over a week ago, it was uh, Goldman Sachs did their first loan in Bitcoin to Coinbase. So, you know, you've got your massive institutions now getting involved in you know, Bitcoin and this commodity. So as much as it's been hampered by everything else that's out there and it's floating around at 29,000, it could potentially go lower yet. You know, I don't see it being the demise of Bitcoin. It's just going to be one of these things. And we'll be sitting here in 2030 with a different slide. And then somewhere in there, it'll be up around about, you know, 300,000. And we'll go, oh, remember when it went down to 29,000 and it was just whatever. So it just shows you the growth of what's happened with it. And as more people start to adopt the, the technology in itself, you know? Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Matt? Well, it's, um, there's a very clear vetting phase here that's uh, happening, you know, for us to, because I think a lot of people expected a hundred thousand this cycle. They expected, uh, you know, Bitcoin's going to go to a hundred thousand. Ethereum's going to go to ten grand. You know, there was a lot of big expectations, um, and obviously those didn't really materialize. I mean, it got up to sixty nine thousand or whatever, and uh let me think what else okay it got up there and then it basically kind of started to pull back uh it was 
really at this point, I mean, you could call it a double top. I mean, unless it really heavily rebounds. Um, but you know, you can never really say, I mean, it's, there's, there's so many good things and there's so much enthusiasm around it that, uh, you know, the train will keep kind of trucking here. I mean, it will keep, things will keep going just as it has in the past. I mean, you can have these brutal crashes, but, uh, the underlying technology is still good. I mean, one of the things I, like I was pointing out earlier is, you know, if you had tether collapse, uh, you know, that would result in, you know, a pretty significant bank rush. I mean, people would, people would sell a lot of Bitcoin and I mean, I think we could see four digits again, to be completely honest, but it wouldn't kill the whole dream. I mean, Bitcoin would not be, Bitcoin wouldn't be over unless there was a extreme technical flaw that arose in, you know, it, its code or design, which, you know, there's some argument that, um, uh, that could happen. Uh, you know, I'm probably one of the few people out there that does know about a vulnerability that is in Bitcoin. Uh, there's it's in Bitcoin. It was in a couple other versions of open SSL. It's called ladder leak. If you look up ladder leak, um, you know, it's, it's very, very interesting because it's, uh, I mean, I'm not a big gold guy, you know, whatever. I just, I don't really care. But with gold, you know, you don't really have one atom change and then, you know, you got lead, you know, gold has been gold for as long as we've been human. But with Bitcoin, uh, this ladder leak vulnerability, which is in the, it's a sec K, P256 one or whatever, like the standard of encryption that it uses for ECDSA. If there's one bit of nonce leakage, you can guess the whole private key. So with enough power, it's theoretical, but it's ladder leaks been done on, um, I think open SSL 4.0 or something like that. I, I, you know, it's, this is all coming from an academic paper I read on a plane, you know, it was from like 2020. I read it on a plane one time and I was like, it always stuck with me that I'm like, well, one bit of nonce leakage, which is nonce is the, you know, basically the entropy, you know, the randomness in a uh, private key or Bitcoin transaction or whatever for ECDSA, you know, at the very core level. And it's, unless there was an issue with that, Bitcoin's not over. So that's, that's the core level thing. People think all oh, the price or tether or something else, you know, only if there was an extreme technical flaw, would it be over? Yeah. And, and then, you know, you're speaking about gold there and people call, you know, Bitcoin digital gold or fool's yep. gold as a lot of the sort of old school guys like to call it. But, you know, essentially gold is fool's gold because what is it? It's like a shiny rock. That we don't actually use for anything else. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like it's not like copper. It's not a conductor we use to provide uh, electricity. It's nothing like that. It's just a big shiny rock that we know that's in Fort Knox. We don't even know how much is in there. We don't use it for anything else. You know what I mean? It's not like silver. It's not. We don't have second uses for gold. It's just a shiny rock that we all like. You know. The Arabs like it the most. They're like cats with a bit of tinsel paper. They love a bit of shiny rock, you know? 
So maybe the Arabs have got it all stored in terms of the shiny rock. But, you know, that's what it is. So that's gold. So why is gold not fool's gold? Oh, well, it's worth a lot of money because we've done this. You know, this is like there's so many use cases in terms of what this technology is bringing. And then because the uh, Bitcoin's running on the blockchain and then all these other use cases are coming out, you know, Bitcoin's here to stay. So I think just like before we get into our project, I think like the thing I want to talk about quickly as well, Garrett, is let's bring it in here. This is a great slide. Let's see if we can actually show everyone. Let's see if I can do this. So this is showing how carbon emissions have grown by countries over the years. So, you know, we're starting to talk about CO2 emissions. Now look at China, they are absolutely ripping up. And then what you're seeing is India as well increasing the carbon emissions so you know what's interesting about whether well, this is the bbc website so you would think it's you know quite reputable in terms of the the information i'll just put it on again because it's so good you know so it's like yeah. um um so that that allows people to do it so if you're starting to think of carbon emissions people here it is again so there's the US back then creating so much carbon. Now look at the amount of carbon, but then we start looking, if you start looking at slides in terms of the carbon emissions going from there, it just increases all the time. And it, it's so interesting to see how everything's changing. The UK completely drops off the map and all what has happened there. So if we start to look at sort of carbon emissions then by country, and we start talking about CO2 emissions, Garrett, give a bit of background into in terms of what your project does in terms of tracking carbon for energy projects. Well, yeah, that's, um, you know, really an interesting thing. You know, we're using the blockchain technology to track carbon, you know, be able to put carbon emissions on the blockchain, ideally get it as close to the wellhead as you can, you know, so that, you know, you're, you know, you can, guess, you know, okay, this much oil equals this much carbon in the air, how much oil is coming out of the ground, how much makes it into someone's gas tank, and then calculate the carbon based on that. So that's, um, so yeah, so that's a bit of an insight to that. So I think when we're looking at carbon by country, first of all, it's like, everyone's got these cutbacks they've got to make going forward. So we've got to do these things in terms of we're cutting back all the carbon emissions. But what yep. you're seeing is, you know, as the US and European countries who were originally the big polluters, US obviously the biggest, what you've seen is a huge amount of pollution coming from China, India and the developed world. Now, their argument is, and going forward, that is because they didn't have an industrial revolution, this is their industrial revolution now, therefore, they don't have to cut back carbon now to further out than the rest of us. So someone like uh, India now says we're going to struggle to cut CO2 emissions until 2070. So what are they doing for that? So they've opened since lockdown. You know, you're going back then, you know, India's opened, I think, 51 coal plants. So what does that tell you? They're going to be using these coal plants for making huge amounts of, they're going to create huge amounts of CO2 emissions. But what they're actually doing with these coal plants is they're powering all these factories to provide goods for the world. So what you're thinking is, so we can't just suddenly say, oh, well, if we just fix China and India, then everything's fixed. But, you know, but ultimately, it's just not as easy as that because, you know, they're the world's factory. 
we are placing the orders and that's what's happening with India and India is now becoming the world's factory so what you're going to see when you start going into Walmart in the next three to five years and same in the UK you're going to see it's going to be made in India rather than always just made in China made it Vietnam it's going to be made in India as well so suddenly all our products are getting made in these countries so they're the world's factories and we are placing the uh, the orders so we've got to suddenly stop saying, well, you know, it's their fault, blah, blah. We, we closed down all the manufacturing here. All your Detroit and Michigan, where we manufacture all the steel and the plastic, we closed it down. We moved it out to China because they had a cheaper labor force and they were able to uh, produce the product at less CO2 emit, well, without having the same regulation in terms of CO2 emissions, etc. But then on the flip side, we've still, we're still creating the product. We're creating it less regulated, and then we've got to stick it on a massive uh, shipping, uh, oh, basically a giant shipping uh, uh, ship, basically. This is the size of like six football fields. And then this huge cargo ship is going to take containers back around to the US, run on diesel. So that all creates CO2 emissions. So people need to understand it's just not a simplistic problem. And then it's also, if we're trying to, you know, go forward in terms of cutting carbon and cutting carbon emissions, you've got to create a model whereby you're able to produce the product essentially with using renewable energy or using nuclear or using natural gas rather than coal. Because essentially all these places are coal. Coal's the biggest polluter. Yeah. There's a big drop from coal to oil and a big drop from oil to natural gas. Germany's trying to get natural gas now included in terms of them being able to come net zero. So, you know, Germany's pushing this narrative that's going to happen for them to be able to go to hit net zero targets. Because then this day, if they can hit net zero, does it actually matter whether... Last natural, gas natural gas from doing this but it's changing all that so people need to understand that and you know and if we can start manufacturing product and tracking the carbon emissions on a granular level and i think that's really what we are starting to do in terms of you know we spoke about this how are we going to create green oil in terms of what we're trying to do and do green bitcoin mining but really it's like, let me see if I can bring this up. So this is like our financial model. So I'll bring this in and we'll go over it again. We always talk about it and then we can look to see what we're bringing in. So so this is like energy tokens, you know, NFST. It's not an NFT. We spoke about it before. This is a non-fungible security token. So rather than just a non-fungible token, this is actually backed against the physical assets and it's a security. But I've made some amendments to last week in terms of how we're actually starting to, uh, you know, bring this forward so let's have a little bit in terms of okay let me go over the model at the start and we'll talk about the process for people who are actually interested in doing this type thing so right now when the original energy tokens platform now we can create these tokens for any energy operator out there and it provides liquidity in the structures of the actual projects themselves so if we start the model, the energy asset is at the very edge of uh, on the left-hand side here. So what you're seeing is the, this is going to be assessed in terms of the valuation. So we're working with companies who already value oil and gas assets. So we're able to value the oil and gas asset. What's unique and what we're trying to do and going forward is the next bit is it's the Bitcoin mining. So where's the, and the CO2 emissions bit? So as the information's analyzed, 
But what we want them to do is we're creating a token for this asset to be dropped into. This token will be put onto an exchange and people will be able to buy fractional interest in a security token that gives them distributions. So as it starts to produce energy, if you own part of these tokens, then you'll get distributions. Now, what's unique in terms of what we're trying to do is we're trying to set it up whereby we're going to be Bitcoin mining at the wellhead itself. Now, there's already companies out doing this where they're kind of capture the methane. So in terms of um, Bitcoin mining out there, you know, why is Bitcoin mining coming back to the US? Because initially all Bitcoin mining was getting done out in China. So why the people who are involved in Bitcoin know a lot about carbon emissions is, well, essentially, that's why we will look to the last slide was to show you carbon emissions by country. So, you know, that all the Bitcoin mining was getting done next to coal plants. So the reason Bitcoin mining was bad for the environment was because essentially it was powered by coal. But the thing people need to realize is all your Nike products are manufactured using coal power. So right now, Nike says by 2025, we are going to be 100% green, except for our product. So our, our stores will be green, our offices will be green, but the product that you actually use will not be green. The product from Nike is going to be manufactured from coal. Now, we've sent a letter out to our manufacturers in uh, China and Vietnam and advised them that we'd prefer if you made your product using renewable energy. But until you do that, we'll continue to buy it even if you're using coal. So, you know, that's people need to understand that. Apple product, I keep saying this every week, all Apple product is manufactured by Foxconn. 94% of all Foxconn's manufacturing comes from coal. So if you've got an iPhone, you've got an iPad, it was coal power to manufacture that. And people need to understand that. So when Bitcoin mining and people looking at Bitcoin mining, oh, Bitcoin's such a bad thing, the electricity used for Bitcoin mining was coming from coal. So as we're bringing more Bitcoin mining back to the US, so the size of the market space in the US has doubled basically in the last 24 months in terms of Bitcoin mining. So we're coming back to use Bitcoin mining here. Now, the variable thing in Bitcoin mining is um, the electricity. So people are looking. can be captured and can be fed into the mining units, you know. So before we go into our project and what we're planning to do, Garrett, if you can give a bit of background in terms of how Bitcoin mining works with oil and gas right now. Well, yeah, that's a very um, interesting thing is uh, many miners are relocating from China and coming to the U.S. to do their mining operations. This has been a big thing here in Texas was... Um, that all of these miners are coming, they're wanting to work with, you know, these, uh, you know, oil and gas producers that have um, methane runoff at their uh, wellheads. And they take, you know, that methane is way worse than CO2 for the environment. Everybody thinks of CO2 emissions. But when, uh, you know, the, the, the reason that gas gets flared, it looks bad, but it's actually better for the environment than letting the invisible methane up into the atmosphere because that's one of the worst greenhouse gases. Uh, but when you can take it and you don't have to just burn it off and you know, you're know you still 
just wasting it when you could take that gas and the energy from it that would just otherwise be wasted and use it for creating free electricity at the wellhead to mine Bitcoin. But what you're doing is you're essentially prolonging the life of the Bitcoin mining equipment. So the life of that equipment is twice as long almost, you know, because you're not paying electricity costs. So your break even is much, much lower. Um, you know, it's very, it's a very, very good thing. It's very innovative. Uh, there's some, obviously some scaling issues with it. I think, you know, that's part of what we're out to solve, but I think, um, it, it's a very, very profound and positive thing that's happening here. And, you know, if you, if you're an oil and gas producer and you're looking to get involved here somehow, um, definitely reach out to Alistair, myself on LinkedIn. We've, you know, I've mined Bitcoin on multiple occasions, but this is the uh, kind of gold rush opportunity. I haven't, I don't think that the uh, oil fields have seen anything like this since probably a hundred years ago, you know, when the first wildcatters were going out there to drill oil. And I think coming back to what we're looking to do with this is, uh, just to let everybody know, we've got like six people watching us on uh, TikTok, so that's quite good. So um, anyway, and they're getting to see behind the scenes. So if you want to see behind the scenes of what we're doing, go on to TikTok Live right now. So anyway, I think what's interesting is like right now with the Bitcoin mining that's going on is they're coming in with these essentially containers. They're putting the containers next to the pump jack and they've got like 700 servers in it and they're trying to catch the methane from there. The cost of these things can be up to like quarter of a million dollars. And, you know, you've got to put in a big outlay of capital in order to start doing the Bitcoin mining itself. And that's really all it's doing. It's just capturing the flame of gas. Essentially, the other advantage is it's, it's cheap. It's, it's basically cheap in terms of the land's already getting used next to the pump jack. And the pump jacks are already connected to the grid. So essentially, you've already got grid connectivity in terms of electricity and you're getting to use free land because usually in the middle of nowhere, you've got these pump jacks that set up. What Garrett and I are trying to do is like a slightly smaller scale where we're not going to have as many Bitcoin mining units connected to the pump jack. But as we get the data that comes in from the Bitcoin mining units, we're going to be also tracking at the same time the, the production as close to the wellhead as possible. So we're tracking all the production. So we're going to be able to track the CO2 emissions of those wells as they're producing oil. So as it produces oil, we're going to be doing the Bitcoin mining, but really simultaneously as we do the Bitcoin mining, we're tracking the CO2 emissions. Now, all this can be essentially written into the smart contract of the token. So people are thinking, well, wait a minute, how does this token actually working? So, so essentially this token takes a form further than it's currently got now. So if you think of a security token and, or just think of oil and gas, we'll just do a quick recap for people to understand. If you're investing into an oil project right now, you're investing, usually the barriers to entry are high. They're looking for people to put in anywhere up to $50,000 as a minimum investment that gets you one, two, three percent of the project from a non-op interest holder. So what will happen is the operator will be there, the landowner, quite often the farmer, 
This is, the, you know, domestic US oil production. And then say 60% of the projects goes out to people who buy interest in this project. As it produces oil, you get distributions. But essentially, it's a bit of a closed shop. So unless you know the operator, you're involved in the oil industry, you're an accredited high net worth investor, it's very difficult for you to invest into these projects. Now, by us changing the capital structure, so now it becomes essentially a token, and then these are these NFSTs, non-fungible security tokens, you know, it opens up the market space to allow everyone out there through essentially the, in the crypto world to buy into those tokens themselves. So now they're able to buy into this token that provides them distribution. So unlike a cryptocurrency, you know, these tokens should be, they'll still move up and down. A lot will be based on what the oil price is or the energy price and what they're actually producing. But as they produce, um, oil as a, a renewable energy one, as it produces electricity, you've got a token that's going to give you distributions and you want to hold on to it for the life cycle of the project. The advantage of doing this is the liquidity. Right now, if you own 1% of an oil project and you want to sell it and it's past peak production, it's very difficult for you to sell it and what's the valuation and who do you sell it to. And again, it's very, very niche from that. And the process, it takes a long time in terms of even transferring the interest. You could be month to six weeks. So the, the, the process is very convoluted. You know, us dropping this into a token, so the capital structure changes. And I think in 10 years from now, all oil projects will be on some form of token. So if that's a set up, but what's interesting with what we're looking to do is it's this CO2 angle of we want to track the carbon emissions of all these tokens that we're creating. So as the tokens are creating uh, energy and this is energy we're using, we're going to track all the way through the supply chain where the carbon's actually tracked and this carbon can be offset. I think what's interesting in terms of the model what we're doing is an extra twist in what we're going to be working on and we'll look to get the first units to be testing this. So Garrett's already able to track information through Energy Ledger from an oil project right now and then we can actually hash that on the blockchain. So if you're a small operator right now and you're thinking, yeah, I'm interested in this, if we start working with you tomorrow, we can track start tracking your CO2 emissions. And the CO2 emissions, and this will be able to track there for your investors. And you'll be able to offset those CO2 emissions as well. And that will allow you to essentially have net zero oil production. What we're looking to do with the Bitcoin mining units is to utilize the data that's collecting at the same time. Can you go into a bit more detail how that works, Garrett? Yeah, so being able to um, essentially the more data that you can produce at the wellhead that gives some sort of idea as to how much oil is being produced and then henceforth how much carbon will be produced from that oil it's very important and you know that's what we're really looking to do is to track and get data right from the source right from the wellhead as to how much oil is coming out of the ground where is it going what quality oil is it uh, what they're refined down to is it you know kerosene naphtha is it ending up as gasoline you know what's this oil ending up as and having all that data canonically from the wellhead through the supply chain and to the consumer gives you some idea um, as to where the inefficiencies are um, where you can make potentially more profit by mining Bitcoin you know especially you know, that's something that's at the wellhead 
that's, um, you know, for most people that are looking to do that, that's going to be the upstream operators. And, uh, you know, getting involved with the Bitcoin mining is a way to offset a huge amount of waste. So, and you can make, you know, you're making a whole nother tier of profit. I know oil prices are high right now, but if you're a producer and you want to make more money, you know, get into the Bitcoin mining because it's going, it's essentially free money, you know, that is coming from, you know, your, your methane waste, anything that you were flaring before can be put towards uh, the production of, you know, a digital currency, Bitcoin, which will probably um, appreciate in value over time as it has in the past. And, you know, this is, uh, th this is the best approach that I could see for most operators out there. I think it's a good approach. And in fact, I think it's the best approach. And I think as we move down the, the sort of the model that we've created there, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're going to have this unit that's connected to the, the pump jack. Ideally, we want to have it whereby we're creating these units so it looks more modernized than in terms of pump jacks, an old looking piece of essentially steel that goes up and down. We want to bring something there so it modernizes the way it looks. It's also the fact that you can actually fit renewable energy stuff on this as well. So, you know, you can put every renewable energy infrastructure that can actually come in and be attached to the Bitcoin mining unit as well. So again, you can have solar panels at the top, you can have a small wind turbine that's connected to it. So essentially, once again, you're actually taking this capability to basically continue to create more, you know, essentially free electricity that's coming in that reduces your variable cost in this. So this is how it sort of modernizes what the actual oil and gas production is. Now, because the oil price is high, is exactly what Garrett says, people are less inclined to want to try new things and going forward until it starts to drop again, because it's a bit like, you know, over $107 a barrel. But what you'll find is with the lockdown in China, I just saw OPEC came out and they're already saying that demand going forward for the rest of the year is down from what they predicted last month. Yeah, so because China has essentially gone into full lockdown right now, and how long will that take for them to come out? So again, the oil price is high because of different things that's happening, but long-term oil, it is going to come back down. You know, there's, there's no way about it. It's not going to stay high forever. So suddenly people are looking to diversify in what they're doing. And then it becomes to do with legislation. See, another thing of what our model was about and when we started to look at it was, you know, if you're funding domestic energy projects, there's Biden today come back and said he's cutting back, you know, potential these leases, you know, about a million leases or something that was talked about today. But if you look at the money that's coming into private equity money into the oil and gas sector, 2018, and this was domestically, you were $220 billion. Last year, it was $20 billion. And this is for new upstream projects. So what you're starting to understand is that the private equity piece of this is now coming out. BlackRock will no longer invest in upstream oil and gas projects domestically in the US. That's what they claim. You know, two years ago, they were doing 12 to 15% of the market space. So if they come out, yeah, they'll do midstream, they'll do downstream, they'll invest in projects that are already in production, but any new drilling projects, they're not willing to put any more money in. So, so suddenly, you're still needing this product, 
but where's the money coming from? And is this where the crypto community can start to come in to fund these things? Because essentially now you're starting to tokenize all these projects. And, you know, I think the whole world's going to get tokenized as the next iteration of the blockchain. But this is basically where it's starting to go. So these are all benefits of this technology coming in. It is just beginning. So everything we're talking about, you know, the next thing I want to talk about is the CO2. So, you know, the way we're looking to work with Garrett is, you know, already we can take the well data analysis. And then the thing about having the Bitcoin mining unit onto it, this will give us real time analysis in terms of the emissions that are actually going out. And we'll be able to hash that, we'll be able to feed this information out there. But even then, you can still get the well data analysis from the pumper through an app and their phone. And as they upload the information, all that information is gathered by Garrett and um, what he's able to do with what he's developed. And that's hashed on the blockchain. So this is recorded on the blockchain all the time. So what we're starting to do is begin transparency into the industry. And now by making this open source, I have a very easy process to work. You know, if you've got any tech people working in your company, you could probably set this up yourself or you bring Garrett to set it up for you. And then you can start tracking the CO2 emissions of it. Because ultimately, if you're a small to medium sized operator, they're needing a way to get this money going forward and then create you know where are they going to they can keep going out to the well but you know eventually the well is going to get dry if the private equity money and the energy investment money's not there but if we can tokenize this we can show that these tokens are basically transmitting all the carbon that they're actually creating this carbon can be offset when people come to invest in this They'll be able to look at that and they'll be able to go into a granular detail and say, well, I actually want to invest in this token that's going to give me distributions because I know these guys are offsetting what it is. And then people start to understand carbon more in terms of, you know, we just looked at that original slide by country, you know, and you saw China and India, the amount of carbon they're creating. And it's just going to keep going up and up and up to like 2050, 2070, depending on which country it is. And then, you know, you'll look at what the production is here compared to there in terms of carbon emissions. So people can start to understand it because right now people just see it as a whole, you know, the world's going to get one and a half degrees warmer in the next hundred years. You know, I know 25,000 years ago, we were two degrees warmer than we are right now. So this is what one of the arguments that people say, but there's no denying the fact that we're increasing the carbon emissions based on there's, you know, seven to eight billion of us now creating carbon every single day, burning off things like that, using up more and more electricity. And this is just going to keep peaking from this going forward as well. But if people can start to understand it more on a granular level, and this is what we're looking to do. And we think if we come in with the right model, whereby the, the outlay of cash is more in the line of 20 to $25,000 in terms of creating this Bitcoin mining units that you collect to the pump jack or the field. We track the carbon simultaneously. It provides you a second revenue stream. This thing's all converted into a token. So you're now opening up uh, and this will be written into the smart contract of the token. But then all the crypto community can start buying into these tokens, these NFSTs. This is why they're different from an, NFS, an NFT. This is a non-fungible security token. And then they can invest into this and get distributions. And depending on how it's set up, these distributions can be in Bitcoin, can be in Ethereum, can be in Cardano. So you can actually invest into this with Bitcoin 
we can do the Bitcoin mining next to the wellhead. We can track the emissions. As we do the Bitcoin mining, you can get the distributions based on your percentage of the token and then the mining that we do. And simultaneously, because we're using the same data, we'll be able to actually record this information and hash it onto the blockchain consistently that people will be able to start to understand it. So it's really, it's a real data play as much as anything else. And it creates this second revenue stream to an industry that we're going to need for the next, we're going to need to produce oil forever. It's just a case of when we stop using oil to refine to gasoline for cars, <clears throat> you know, we still need yeah. it for all the product and stuff. Absolutely. And I think just looking at the rest of the slide, you know, we spoke about it before coming through there. If you think about how it actually works is it's the equity interest in the NFST that's tokenized. So everything's put into the token. It's not the product itself. So people think we're tokenizing oil. We're not tokenizing oil. We're tokenizing the equity interest and you own the equity interest through tokens. And then because of these ATSs coming live now, you've got Securitize, you've got T0, you've got North Capital, you've got multiple other ones coming in. There's going to be secondary liquidity. So coming back to the benefit of why this is going to happen, it's going to change so many different things. It's like the token now holds the interest and people buy into the interest because a lot of the old school oil guys think, well, you know, I only like dealing with 30 guys out there. You know, I want to deal with a private equity partner. I want to deal with these guys who fund it. I want to deal with these accredited investors, you know, and if they buy interest, you know, we file it in the courthouse, they get the interest sent. I don't like this idea of having to deal with 1,000, you know, crypto people from all over the world owning interest in the token. But the thing is, is the token holds the interest in the project and they own interest in the token. So as they buy and sell into the token, we don't have to update the courthouse constantly with these interest holdings because the token's like an, a separate entity. You know, it's like a business. So already if they understand the businesses are buying in and holding the projects as funds or trusts, this is just set up in the same way, except it's formed as the token. And right now, uh, Wyoming and Delaware are the two key places where these things are getting connected because they're the ones that are sort of the most blockchain and Bitcoin friendly of all the different states. But in going forward, this will happen everywhere. And then if you're thinking, well, you know, these guys are talking, if you're running a small operator right now and you're thinking, the cost to set this up isn't as much as you actually think and you could take a lead to the market space and then suddenly if you start to understand what it is, it's like the technology is all coming together. These things are all interlinked. All Garrett and I are trying to do is put the bits of the jigsaw together that works. And for the big operators out there, they'll be able to do this stuff on permission blockchains. So they'll be able to do all everything we've talked about and not even open it up to for retail investment. But to a certain extent, I think the big operators right now who are involved in a lot of green energy projects in your shells and your BPs and your Equinors, yep. you know, if they could take a small percentage of these wind farms and or solar farms or so some of the projects they're doing in transition and energy and they put it out there and they basically set it up that we could get retail investment and suddenly a hundred thousand people all own part of a shell wind token and then we're tracking this stuff on the blockchain and we're realizing what shell's doing for this particular project with them 
you know, that something is going to be so positive to these companies and that technology is coming in and it's just a matter of time for them doing it. It's just like, this is early adoption people. So we're talking about this, oh, Bitcoin's been around since 2012, you know, or going back even further. But to a certain extent, what you're seeing now is this technology through the blockchain, it's starting to come together. And then what we're looking to do is we're starting to basically put all the bits of the jigsaw together, do this on a granular level. Once we start doing Bitcoin mining next to the, the pump jack and tracking the CO2 emissions, we'll have a product that will be able to go to market. There's not going to be quarter of a million dollars. So it suddenly knocks out everyone who's got, you know, who's got a spare quarter of a million dollars to do Bitcoin mining right now. Not everybody in terms of oil and gas, but if we can put something together, it does on a smaller scale, tracks the CO2 emissions, it's part of the smart contract itself, it costs anywhere between twenty to $30,000 and we can come out and set this up and we're tracking all that. It suddenly makes you a market leader in your field because ultimately what we are is a software company that what we're creating here with Garrett and ourselves. So it's like, we're a software company that does this technology. I know through Zion, I just set up to become an operator, had to get our, you know, our license to do that. We're, you know, um, we're an operator in the state of Indiana. You know, we've kept the wells in good standing for three years. So we've got our grandfather clause. So it allows us to scale out, but we sort of done this in order to basically prove the model. And then what we want to do is to create these units, to create these tokens, to give these people this ability to come in to track this CO2 emissions. And this is how we can start to move to a place of, yeah, we're not going to make green oil in terms of it's going to come out the ground green in the same way as renewable energy. But if we can actually have this product whereby we're creating where it's as close to net zero as possible, and we've got all these other factors put in and we're tracking it and making it transparent. That is where the, the, the market shift's gonna come from. And if you're thinking you're sitting on mature assets out there and you're looking for ways to change that, you know, this is the type of thing where this technology can be, you know, revolutionary to your small business. And then in terms of our small operator business, bear in mind a small operator can turn over a hundred million dollars. It's still, this is the technology that's part of the change, you know? And that's what's key in what we're actually looking to do with this. So that's our sort of financial model that me and Garrett have been working on anyway in developing. Anything else to add to that, Garrett? Yeah, I mean, you said it best. That's, um, you know, what, what we're out here to do is um, create, you know, a opportunity to offset the emissions that your drilling operation might produce and you know you could do that in ways like uh bitcoin mining or carbon offsets and eventually we're going to be able to work towards you know net zero oil or, or green oil i really do think that by um monitoring and managing you know production it is possible to reach that and that's a a much easier thing to raise money on you know when it comes to institutional capital than you know just traditionally going out and you know okay you're you're buying pump jacks and setting up a wellhead but like you know what are you doing that's innovative uh this is the way to raise that money and be innovative in an industry that hasn't changed significantly since probably the 1980s yeah and then what we're talking about in terms of capital structures goes back to the way oil was originally done back in, you know, the early 1900s. You know, yeah. the, way it get, the way the information gets reported to the courthouse and how the interests work and how the interests change hasn't changed 
for essentially over 100 years. It's still exactly the same way. What this does, it basically creates mass transparency to ownership. And then by putting on the blockchain, people will be able to see that. See, the, the, you know, the, this refutable way of actually holding information is key, but it also allows people to have ownership without having to do it this way because the token has the ownership and the, this is held by through a transfer agent. So this is all SEC regulated. At any time you're an operator, you can go and see who owns the tokens. People aren't going to want to buy these tokens to basically buy and sell on a daily basis, trying to just hedge it and make money from it. It's like you're wanting to hold on to these tokens to get the distributions. And the distributions can be in any form you want. And that's based on the, the production of the oil, but also the production of the Bitcoin mining. Because when the Bitcoin mining is getting done simultaneously to it, as it produces, uh, as we mine Bitcoin, and it'll be tiny fractional interests, but you'll have your wallet that will just be getting little bits of Bitcoin in. And if this one does Solano and we do that and we do Ethereum mining or NFT mining, anything like this happens with these tokens and then people can get, and people will come to us and we'll help set up these tokens for them and then for their projects. And I think a lot of the NFT market will start to look to that list and they'll start seeing our model is it from a longevity perspective is better than the current NFT model. And that's what I believe, because essentially we're tokenizing physical assets rather than tokenizing digital assets. And I get it, we're all moving the metaverse and all we're all doing these things as well, but nothing to this, you know, we're on this planet anyway. This is planet generating electricity. We need electricity to basically, the metaverse is going to need so much electricity as we go into this digital world. And then what you're going to find is this ability to have a second use case. And there's a million pump jacks going up and down in America. It, eventually what might happen is we'll stop moving them up and down for oil and they'll be there and they'll be basically converted to these things that Gareth and I are talking about and we'll have a wind turbine connected, we'll have solar panels connected, they're already connected to the grid and they're generally generating electricity and we're mining whatever we're needing and this electricity is getting used to solve the supercomputers as we're going forward as well because that's the area where you'd want to do it because what's the point in doing the cities where the costs are high and it's very difficult to get second revenue streams? But for the oil and gas sector, if they start thinking about what's happening right now and, you know, farming, people like that as well, that's where all the land is, you know, all these areas, it all goes back in cycles, you know? So this is what's going to happen from there. So whizzing along to, because we're already at 59 minutes, or 49 minutes, sorry, Garrett. let's see if we've got my chewing the cud one that we were coming up there as well so we were going to speak about as the world's sort of collapsing you know which is uh the usual That's a little bit grim to say but yeah there's a lot of yeah, it, it's it's already it's already collapsing so we'll we'll go to this uh, quality publication that everyone watches from the um and Republican side of things is the Republican news channel, Fox News. Anyway, they, they did this yesterday. Biden's blasted for lying about gaslighting speech, blaming inflation on pandemic and, uh, and Putin, you know? So he basically came out there. I actually had a video of it, but I can't really get him live in the video. I wonder if I can just show, show him there as well. well. It'll maybe come back up in a second. Here we go. So it's... Um, so anyway, what's interesting about that is, there he is himself. So he basically came out and said, the American public don't understand, it's got nothing, inflation has nothing to do with um, government uh, spending. It has everything to do with everything else apart from him, you know? 
So I like his little things, lowering cost, tackling inflation, tackling inflation, lowering costs. <laughs> well, what's wow. your thoughts on this then, uh, right now then? Uh, got it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, seeing is this, you know, we're not alone. I mean, the, the market at large has seen a huge correction. And I think it's actually at this point stands around where it was in March 2020. There's but it's been a big pullback. And um, I think we I don't even think we felt the full impact of it yet. Um, unfortunately, due to all of the runaway spending during the pandemic, combined with uh, now this war, I mean, we're the federal government, you know, when I say we, I mean, the federal government has, uh, you know, they're bleeding America dry. They're, they are, um, you know, the Biden administration is, you know, they're asleep at the wheel while we, you know, we're causing this, you know, inflation rate to rise year on year to it's around 9% now, if it gets above 13% where it was in the 1980s, you know, it did get that high in the 1980s. If we get above that, which I think we already may be, you know, secretly, I don't think that they're going to come out and say that. But I do think that we may be very well above that point. Uh, it's going to be difficult and it very well could cause this um, this flourishing housing market, all of this stuff that, you know, has been so good over the past few years uh, to just collapse. You know, it, it, it could be very similar to, if not worse than 2008, when you consider the, you know, the prospect of America being involved in the war in Ukraine, I mean, it's, uh, this could get ugly very fast. Yeah. And I, I think for people to understand that, you know, traditionally inflation comes when the government's spending too much money that it doesn't actually have. You know, yep. if you look back, you know, I went to university, study economics, you know, you're trying to understand inflation, you know, it, it's basically not to do as a simple balance sheet, but when the government's spending massive amounts of money and printing lots of money, that's the other problem. If we keep printing money and printing money and printing money and spending money and spending money we don't have, you know, inflation rises. The, the sad thing for most of the people out there is, you know, inflation actually affects the poorest in society the most rather than the richest in society. So, you know, with asset inflation that Garrett spoke about just now, you know, asset inflation. So the price of your house, if you're lucky enough to own a property, what's happened the last two years is your property's increased in value a lot, you know? Apart from my apartment in Aberdeen, Scotland, which is obviously crashed because of the oil price. But apart from Aberdeen and Scotland, everywhere else in the world, the price of property has gone up. And even in Aberdeen and Scotland, it's starting to go up there as now. You know, we're starting to shift renewables back in Scotland, so can't just be oil. Even the oil price is high right now. I don't understand why property doesn't go up. So it's anyway. So apart from that, so if you own property, it's you, you're still gonna, you know, you're increasing. You're getting email every month. Oh yeah, my property's gone up. My property's gone up. So this, that's asset inflation. But when asset inflation is going so fast, generally inflation catches up behind it. You know. So yeah. what's happened is for the poorest people out there. So if inflation's at eight and a half percent. Now, I read somewhere that, that meat, like beef, inflation in the last year has been 30%. So, you know, if that's a stable diet and people eat meat and eat beef, 
the price of your beef's gone up 30%. And that's a huge amount if you eat that. So now suddenly you can't afford to go out and do stuff. You know what I mean? Luckily, McDonald's and Burger King don't have much beef in their burgers. So they're still okay. They've got some sort of genetically modified plasticine that we're all eating <laughs> that never goes off. But apart from that, if you go to supermarket, it's gone up 30%. So the poorest people now, they're affected by this. So basically back to like lower inflation, you know, what's, what, you know, what's Biden doing for the poorest people in society? And that's always the biggest concern because essentially, you know, some people say inflation's a stealth tax for the poor. That's what it is. Yeah, it really you know? is. You know, it's, uh, you know, Joe Biden has, uh, he's stolen, you know, from so many people he, you know, his administration has been literally stealing from the mouths of the people that they, you know, ran for president, you know, ran for the office of the president to, you know, help, you know, they, they're stealing from the same people that they promised to help. And, you know, that doesn't even get into the fact that they outright lied about the student loan forgiveness. I mean, they, they said that they were going to forgive $10,000. That was the biggest campaign promise. You know, they haven't done any of that. You know, none of those promises were fulfilled. And, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't, you know, there's the certain things you can just walk back or you could say we're going to try to do. That was a promise. You know, they promised that to thousands, millions of people with student loan debt. And, uh, nobody received that forgiveness. You know, I think there was a small, maybe 50,000 people, which isn't anything, received some kind of uh, student loan forgiveness. But that that happens anyways. There's already rules in place that help on that. But uh, yeah, the, their promises and the fact that they have inflated the dollar to an obscene, obscene rate is, uh, you know, it's, it's grotesque. Yeah, you know, and I think it's, um, but, you know, as the governments change and stuff like that as well, coming out of the pandemic, it was going to be bad. I think the other thing that people think the lockdown yeah. in China right now, you know, this is going to mess with the supply chain even more. You know, it was oh, great. Yeah. You know, let's think back to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, you know, you know, and some people, they think of it, you know, I come from Scotland, so in Scotland, we hated Margaret Thatcher because she did this <laughs> poor tax. Oh, no, no, we hated her. You yeah. know, it's like there was a party on her funeral. Everyone had a party in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone was like, that's absolutely outrageous. You know, we loved Margaret Thatcher. You know, there's a lot of sort of conservative women out in America. Like, oh, yeah, we, do, we love, you know, Kate that yeah. Kelly and stuff. She's my heroine. But, you know, the bottom line is she did this poll tax to the Scottish people and she tried this tax out in Scotland first than everyone else. And then rather than being taxed on your property, she did everyone gets the same tax. So what happened was the millionaire living on their own in some $10 million property was paying less money than four people living in a sort of council estate in the sort of Bronx area, you know, but they had yeah. four adults in the house <laughs> to live yeah. in this tiny little place and they had to pay money. And her idea was, well, everyone should just pay the same tax on their property they live. It was just ridiculous, you know? And then they decided after trying in Scotland for two years that they wouldn't even try in England. So obviously that type of tax didn't go down well with the Scottish people. But basically she broke down the unions 
you know. And the same here, um, Reagan broke down the unions. So when they broke down the unions, people, the first thing they did is, yeah, great, there's no more unions. Let's move all the manufacturing. The corporations now can move the manufacturing straight out to China because we can produce the product cheaper. So there's been a lot of benefits for that because then we can get access to more products. Uh, you know, it, it basically bolstered the, the, you know, the market space out in China, changed how they operated. We started getting a lot more product cheaper, so it helped individuals. But ultimately, now what's happened is because we've got no supply chain, you know, and no manufacturing here, this is part of the problem. And then we look at the CO2 emissions and everyone we're looking at there as well. Let's not blame China. Let's not blame India. I'm, I'm sick of bl blaming them. No, let's keep blaming them. Wait a minute. We moved all the manufacturing. We just placed orders with these people, you know? So, and, and, and now they don't want to, you know, well, you've got to do all green energy. No, sorry. They're going to open coal plants. They're going to do their own industrial revolution. They, you know, India is going to be the next world superpower come 2050. They reckon by the end of the year, the 2100 in Nigeria, based on population, could be a potential superpower that's going forward. People think Nigeria, yeah, because they're having lots of babies and everyone else isn't. So all our population's yeah. dwindling. They're still having a lot of babies out there. So it could be Nigeria's the next one by the turn of the century. So it doesn't matter anyway. We've got to start to think about how to fix these things going forward. And it means bringing the manufacturing back to Detroit. I don't understand why Biden and essentially Trump was sort of talking about this thing before is, why do they not bring the manufacturing back to the US, back into Detroit, back into Michigan, back where you did all the manufacturing before, but rather than having 5,000 people, have 50 people, we're going to use AI, automation, robots are taking over anyway. You know, how much do we pay a robot in Michigan compared to a robot in Beijing? I think it's probably the same, nothing, <laughs> you know, yeah. the power of it, what it is. And then we can stick wind turbines up, we can put solar panels on top, and we can create the same product using renewable energy. And that's the sort of disruption that we need to take for the world going forward, you know, and that's something I think yeah. is just so key with this, you know, so it, it just like there's so many factors in going forward. But, you know, right now with what's happening, the poorest in society are going to suffer the worst because of increases in inflation. So what are they going to do to fix that there as well? So I ended up getting a couple of cartoon characters before we go into the final thing here today. So today here is this is. This is who Joe Biden thinks he is. <laughs> you know who that is? Peter Pan, the yeah, youngest yeah, guy yeah. in politics. You know, he never grows old. He's like 50 years old. But this is actually who he is. <laughs> you know who that is? Exactly. Sle yeah, Sleepy from the Seven Dwarfs. Let's see. There he is. Yeah, yeah, falling asleep at the CO2 emissions. And then listen, this is banned in China, so we'll get taken off the air in China. But look who that is. <laughs> President there Z, you, you know, speaking to Biden. Excuse me, President Z, can you uh, increase the production of our stuff? Uh, sorry, we've got lockdown right now. Because he actually, Winnie the Pooh is banned in China's uh, internet because they say everyone, they were making jokes in China that President Z looked like him, so he didn't like it. So he used his intranet to remove Winnie the Pooh from that. But not to be outdone, you know, 2024 is coming along. And look who I've got coming in for this with his new red hat on. <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> Make yeah. America again. Jab of the hut. So, so there we go, everybody. You know, that's me offended every Republican, every Democrat, and everybody in the Chinese um, Communist Party who doesn't like Winnie <laughs> the Pooh. So, so that's good. So, just a final thing before we finish up today, then, Garrett, let me just bring that in. So, you know, obviously, you'll be able to 
to see in terms of what we... So Garrett and I are both libertarians, everybody. So that's quite good. And Bitcoin libertarian in terms of what we're looking to do. It's the third parties in there. But here's my Bitcoin libertarian NFTs that are available out there for people. And, you know, you know, I think a great leader. And being a libertarian, here's the thing that people don't understand is, right? You can be as conservative as you want. You can be as conservative as you want. I don't care. And as a Democrat, you can be as liberal as you want. And I'm very liberal in the way I think in terms of, because I've got a son who's got special needs. So I think of things that are different there as well. But I'm very conservative, obviously, in what I'm thinking in terms of I went to economics. My dad was a bank manager. And I like to make my decision on a policy by policy basis. And then when we do this, you know, and I don't have to disagree with you. And here's the thing. I, I, I just want to, that's your opinion. That's my opinion. And we don't always have to agree, but we don't have to hate each other over it. And I think that's the key to being a libertarian out there as well, you know, and it's just the case of that's why the libertarian party is starting to get more and more people come to him. You know, Joe Rogan, he's a libertarian out there. Russell Brand, he's a libertarian. They just don't want to say it because they'll be hated. But basically, that's what they talk about. Garrett and I are just prepared to go out there and say it ourselves. So anyway, Bitcoin Libertarian coming in there. I love this quote from Martin Luther King, great hero of mine. And then obviously this one is a second evil which plagues the modern world is that of poverty. And you think what's happening with this technology of the blockchain people, you know, that's what we should be trying to do. That's what government should be trying to do is like, how are we going to eradicate poverty going forward? How are we going to create opportunities for people in these inner city areas that don't have opportunities? You were talking about student debt there. It's like we've got to change the way it works in America in terms of if young kids want to go to university, we should be able to do it because we can do this thing online you know, University of Phoenix, why cannot we offer a free degree through University of Phoenix and make people like Microsoft and Apple buy everyone a computer, you know, who are going to go to university so they don't have to get 200k in the hole, you know, because essentially the educational level in America that used to be number one in the world is just going down the way, you know. I think it's rated like not in the top 20 countries in the world now after being number one 20 years ago. And that's yeah. because it's so expensive for kids to go to university over here, which is like absolutely crazy. Now, you might think, oh, well, you know, I paid off my student loan. I get that, right? And then some things we did in the past we didn't like, but we can't just make everyone for the rest of eternity. Well, you know, I had to pay a 200 grand student loan because I took some arts thing. And then, uh, you know, I came out of it, I had to get a job in Starbucks. And basically, unless I made myself bankrupt and screwed to buy property. Yeah. You know, you've got to give people opportunity. Yeah, Harvard and, you know, MIT, they're always going to charge money, but we have to create an option whereby people can go online and think, you know, I'm going to study this at home. I'm going to get the same degree. You know, what lockdown showed us was that kids can do this, you know, and you've got to create opportunities for inner city areas because without creating opportunities, you know, where are these people going to go? There's no opportunities. It's getting worse and worse and worse. There's less jobs for them. You know, crime's increasing. All these things are looking to do. And obviously what Martin Luther King did was essentially a big civil rights activist. You know, it's, it's amazing the yeah. life that guy led. But the thing just before he died, two years before, this thing was, well, wait a minute, there's white people that's poor. 
You know, there's Indian people that's poor, there's Asian people poor. Wait a minute, look at all these other people. And it's an economic thing. It wasn't just from the color of his skin. It was like this guy back before he got assassinated was actually pushing it out even further. He was actually saying, well, wait a minute, there's millions of poor white people that are the same situation as millions of poor black people. And he actually pushed that narrative at that time. And it's unbelievable that the amount of governments we go over and over and over again, we can't take this guy's message and push it forward from there. And, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, it's a pity that guy could never become president in America, you know? I always think that that's something I've always run through my head is, you know, what what would have happened if he would have not gotten assassinated? And even just like if, if he just ran for president, like in his time, I'm not saying, you know, that there's so many so much speculation on whether or not he would have been able to win. But I always run that through my mind. What if he would have even just been able to run for president? It would have been huge. Uh, it's just it's, it's amazing. And it's amazing what he talked about and amazing what he did. And the way he pushed it and the way to put, you know, I mean, you read his books and he talks about Gandhi and the way he did it with it as well. It was just like this way of just it's just amazing how he's changed the world and it's you know and going forward it was it was so interesting is like even now we talk about him all the time at schools they teach about him they've got a holiday here as well and you know that's where it was making america great and it's like guys like that want to do that and you know this a second evil which plagues the modern world is that of poverty you know we've got the ability to feed the world but we don't we choose not to do it you know yeah. because if you know because walmart wants to chuck all the food out so you get the insurance money you know that's nice you know <laughs> let's ch like, rather than feed all the homeless people let's chuck away the food so we get the insurance money just when it goes past the best before date you know that's like madness for people out there and it's like we but we can basically and then the thing about what's happening and the thing about the blockchain the blockchain, because it creates this level of transparency, that's why the governments don't like it, because we can hold the governments transparent, but we can also hold the corporations transparent. It's like me going on about Nike making all their product through of coal, and Apple is coal. And people are probably like, I don't even know that information. If you just Google it, you'll find it. But they don't want to tell you that information, because they want the cheap product to do this. And then you're seeing some guy eating out of a garbage can. It's like 50% of homeless people in America have got mental health problems, over 50%. One in eight homeless people in America, males, are veterans. That's like, uh, so one in eight homeless people you see in the street right now, they've gone over, and whether you think, well, it doesn't matter what you think of defense, this person's gone back, gone there, he's gone out to some war to defend whether it's right or wrong, but he's gone out there to defend the country and you've created a system where this person's in the, sleeping in the streets. And the same in the UK, because they just let them slip through the cracks of society. I remember seeing this guy, just I'll finish off on an end note there. I saw this guy with first five program and we were in there because obviously we've been, I've been in so many different programs because my son's got special needs. That's why I know about all these sort of, all this information coming there it was German Autism Speaks Walk. So many people in the spectrum end up in the streets and slip through the cracks of society. This guy was living under a bridge in San Diego, down outside IB, right? Living under a bridge, that's where he lived. He went and did two tours in Iraq in the first Gulf War. So he did two tours in Iraq in the first Gulf War. He ended up telling me that it was actually an explosion. He got shrapnel in his brain. So he had like massive scars in his head. 
Now, he couldn't access services because the documentation that they gave this guy was like this thick. So even though he was a veteran and he was entitled to do it, you're not going to do it until you can fill in. Honestly, it was just paper and paper. And the woman who was running the first five program, she was actually, and she was Mexican. And you're this Mexican woman who's here, moved from Mexico, got a green card now, running the first five program. She had a disability. And in her own spare time, she was filling out the forms for this veteran, you know? So you had a Mexican woman from Tijuana with a disability taking her own time to fill in the forms for this veteran who lived under a bridge because society said he couldn't fill in the forms, he couldn't access the services. Wow. And that, and that is so messed up. It's unbelievable. And that's happening all the time. So rather than just say this person out there has got a drug problem, they've got some other type of problem, I'm telling you right now, at least one in eight of these people are veteran. And everyone says, you know, and I've been on planes, I've been in meetings, and everyone's a veteran, you know, I want to thank you for the service for this company, you know. But I'll tell you what, though, we're not thanking that guy for the service company because we're letting through the slips in society. And they should just have a veteran, little stamp, boom, get access to everything, you know, especially healthcare. How can these people not get access to healthcare? Anyway, we'll leave that another time anyway, Garrett. So, right. it, so that's been great. We've gone way longer than normal. You know, currently, the, 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 the you know, we're on uh, TikTok Live. We've got a few people coming in and out, so that's quite good. We'll see how many people watch this afterwards. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We'll get it out on Facebook, and we will have it on YouTube and on uh, LinkedIn Live. So thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for your time today again, Garrett. You've been watching Boom It's on the Blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness. Have a nice day.